Amen. What a blessing. Beautiful worship for a beautiful God. We love the Lord. Revelation 15 tonight. The shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, eight verses, but there's a lot in these wonderful verses tonight. This chapter is the prelude to Armageddon, which we will look at next week at the end of chapter 16. But this is a prelude to Armageddon. Everything in this chapter is pointing towards that moment. And we're going to see three things in these eight verses. We're going to see God's sovereignty is revealed as Armageddon approaches. God's servants rejoice as Armageddon approaches. And God's sanctuary in heaven is readied as Armageddon approaches. First of all, let's look at verse 1, where we see the wonder that God does and the wrath of what God does. John says, Then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven, seven angels who have seven final plagues. They are final because in them God's anger is completed. Here in verse 1, again, we see God's sovereignty revealed as Armageddon approaches. And the first thing I want us to note is the wonder in what God does. Notice John writes, there's a sign, and it is great, and it is astounding. It evokes awe and wonder. God is a God of awe and wonder. We're going to be reminded of this in just a moment, but again, I want to take us in time back to that moment. Can you imagine? I mean, even in a small way, what it was like for a human being just like you and I to see the sea part and to see it walled up on two sides, to see maybe two million people walk across on dry ground and then see it all collapse on the Egyptian army that was pursuing them. In fact, the word sign here in verse 1 speaks about something that only God could do or God could bring about, not something that a human being could ever do. Sign in heaven. We must never forget that our God is a God of wonder. But he is also a God of wrath. These seven angels are given the seven final plagues because, John says, they are final because in them God's anger is completed. It is brought to its appropriate and climactic conclusion. Let me talk for a moment about God's wrath or God's anger. It literally speaks about his expressed passion. If you want to think of a word that is a synonym of the word wrath or anger, it's passion. God is very passionate about things. And one of the things that God is passionate about 
or in this case, against is sin and the results of sin. He's very passionate about it. Because ever since the garden, we realize that, first of all, God never meant for sin to be a part of his original creation. If he had his way, it would have never entered in. But because he wanted to give man a free will to be able to choose, sin entered in. Man chose sin. And ever since then, God has been dealing with the tragic results and consequences of sin. Sin has stained, if you will, all that God created, including his physical creation, beyond the creatures like you and I that he created. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that even the earth is groaning, waiting for its day of redemption. And so God is very passionate against sin and wickedness and evil and all the, the pain and suffering that it has brought about over the history of the earth. And God has said, enough. I am done with it. I'm going to deal with it once and for all. I'm going to put an end to it. And only God can do that. Only God has the will and the power and the resources to be able to deal with evil and wickedness and sin once and for all and put it in its place and recreate a new heaven and a new earth in which absolute righteousness will dwell for all of eternity. So when you think about God's wrath, think about a passionate God, and think about it then from another perspective, that the same passion that God has against sin is the same heartbeat and passion that he has for us. Don't ever forget that. God loves you and me with an unquenchable love, a passion that cannot be extinguished or diminished in any way. And that passion will burn for us for all of eternity. God is a passionate God, which is why... <laughs> When you and I follow the Lord, part of what we should be expressing in our lives are proper passions. There should be certain things that we are passionate about because God is passionate about certain things. There are certain things we should be passionate for and certain things we should be passionate against as we align ourselves with God. So in verse 1, of this great chapter, a prelude to Armageddon, we see God's sovereignty revealed as Armageddon approaches. But then beginning in verse 2, we see God's servants rejoicing as Armageddon approaches. He is being praised from verse 2, or in verse 2 through verse 4, for his judgment and his justice. 
He's being praised for his ways and his works. He's being praised for his nature and his name. He's being praised for his worth and his wisdom. And we're going to see all of these in these few verses tonight. Notice that John says then, verse 2, I saw something like a sea of glass or crystal mixed with fire. Because God, remember, is a consuming fire. And those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name, and they were standing by the sea of glass holding harps given to them by God. God gave them harps because he not only wants to be praised and worshipped with our voices, he wants to be praised and worshipped with musical instruments. And musical instruments as well as our voices will be two things that God is praised and worshipped with throughout eternity. And even here in this prelude to Armageddon. But I want to mention this. Why are these particular people worshiping and praising God, go to the middle of verse 2. Because they had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name. Think about it. This is picturing a group of triumphant, victorious believers who come out of the great tribulation the darkest time in human history. And they conquered because they were made conquerors in Jesus Christ. If they can come out of the darkest time of human history, the great tribulation, when the Antichrist will be on the throne of this earth, then you and I can come out of the days in which we live conquering and victorious because of the one who makes us conquerors, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they lost on earth, they more than gained or made up for in heaven for all of eternity because most of these were martyred. So make note of that. They were considered conquerors even though they were martyrs. In fact, it was through their martyrdom or their faithfulness even to the point of death that they were considered conquerors. See, death for the Christian, especially if it's a death because of our faith in Jesus Christ, is not looked at by God as a defeat. It's looked at as a victory because God always has eternity in mind more than the temporal, earthly, brief life that we have here on earth. Though even as Christians, we can cling to our earthly life more than we can be living for eternal things. And this, again, reminds us that we need to have an eternal perspective as we live our brief time here on this earth and realize that what may look like a defeat to others and even the people of this earth is no defeat at all. The greatest illustration of that would be our Lord Jesus Christ. Looked like he was defeated when he died on that cross, but he was actually victorious when he finished and fulfilled the will of the Father for why he came to this earth. 
You see, what can be interpreted as defeat by some is interpreted as victory by God. And so we need to see things from God's perspective. But they were ready to worship. They were ready to praise the Lord here. And so notice verse 3, they sang, first of all, the song of Moses, the servant of God, and then they sang the song of the Lamb. They sang an old song, an ancient song, and they sang a new song, a recent song, both to honor the Lord. And I shared with you a few of those verses out of the Song of Moses from Exodus chapter 15. Again, reminding us that what was the response of the people of God when God redeemed them and bought them out of slavery in Egypt? Worship. Worship was the response and result of redemption, and it should be the response of our redemption as well. We should never get over our own salvation. We should never get over that our God saves and delivers and rescues, and not only that, but provides victory for us over all of our enemies. As they saw the Egyptian army drown in the sea and realize that God not only saved them, but defeated their enemy, that God does the same thing for us. He has defeated all of our enemies. You see, the song of Moses resounds with the themes of God's victory and God's salvation and God's deliverance. And you and I can celebrate those very things as well. We are made more than conquerors through him who loved us, Paul said. And we can celebrate our victory in Jesus Christ every day. We can celebrate our deliverance, and not just our deliverance into the body of Christ or into Christ, but our other deliverances and rescues that God provides for us throughout our lifetime. They sang the song of Moses. They never got over that, nor should we get over what God did that day on the banks of the Red Sea, but they also sang the song of the Lamb. And I believe that goes back to Revelation chapter 5, that passage that talks about worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power and majesty and all those things in Revelation chapter 5. But then they added to that song here, And they added this new verse, if you will. And I want to take a good look at these words because, again, they speak to what we've just even sung about tonight, the greatness of our God, you see. First of all, is the word great? We must never forget that our God is a big God. He's a big God. We need to allow him to be a big God, not a small God. We we must not bring God down to a level that we can wrap our minds around and wrap our arms around. Let God be bigger than we could ever conceive. Let him be beyond what we can, can wrap our minds around. It's okay. That's who he needs to always be for us is a big God. In fact, I even put in my Bible, the greater sign 
because that's really what this is saying, that our God is greater than whatever else you want to put on the other side of that greater sign. Whatever situation, whatever circumstance, whatever trial, whatever tribulation, whatever obstacle, anything, you put anything on that other side of the greater sign, God is greater than that. He's greater. Put any enemy, put all the demons of hell, put Satan, put everything. God is greater than all of them put together. God is greater. So the song of the Lamb continues with, great and astounding are your deeds. The word astounding here could also mean wonderful, marvelous. It describes an awe-evoking sight that moves the beholder to the deepest of emotions. In a sense, they're awestruck, dumbfounded, speechless, cannot express. That, that, that's part of sort of the, the rub, if you will, that we have as the people of God. We want to express and we need to express our praise of God. But at the same time, we are always very well aware that we don't have all the proper words and ways to be able to express or articulate how wonderful God is, how marvelous God is, how majestic he is. So it's that place where we do the best that we can with the words that we have, but we always know it's never enough to totally capture our astounding God. There are moments throughout our life where our God should leave us continually speechless and where all we can do is say within ourselves, God, I want to praise you for this. I want to worship you for who you are. But just take, take the feelings and emotions of my heart because I know that through the Spirit you can interpret them, God, and take them as my offering to you right now because I don't have any words to say. I have nothing to say to you right now, not because you're not deserving of it, because I can't come up with anything that's proper, that's appropriate, that's fitting, because you are an astounding God. Lord God, the all-powerful. Lord God speaks of him being the master, the ruler of the universe. All-powerful is one of, again, my favorite words for God or descriptions of God in the New Testament. It speaks of his, obviously, his omnipotence, that he is sovereign over all that he is the one who is in control of all things for all time, that there's never a time where there's nothing in the universe that is outside of his control. What a word. No one or nothing more powerful than God. Just and true are your ways. You are right, God, all the time. You are righteous in all that you do, including your judgment, which is about to come 
at Armageddon. You are true. You are the real deal. You are authentic. You are genuine. There's no pretense in you. You are absolutely transparent. You are as pure as pure can be. You can see why it's important that we stop and look at these words instead of just reading them and passing them over because they begin to, again, paint what we can paint of a portrait of our God in some way. King over the nations, absolute and universal sovereign. And as we're going to see in Revelation 19, 16, he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. No one higher, no one greater. He has no equal, no competitor, no rival. He is the one and only true king. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who will not be in reverential awe of you and glorify or praise or magnify or honor your name? The name we sung about tonight that is higher than every name. Because you alone are holy. And again, I like to define holy as holy other. W-H-O-L-L-Y-O-T-H-E-R. God is holy other. There is no one or nothing like God. He is totally separate from everything else that he created. There is the uncreated God, and then there's everything else. Holy. John looks ahead and sees that one day all nations will come and worship before you. Wow, what a day that will be. You and I will be on the earth in the millennial kingdom when all the people of all nations will flood to worship the Lord. An amazing day. Might even be a foretaste of every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So in these verses, we see that God's servants are rejoicing as Armageddon approaches because of who God is and what God has done and what he's about to do. And then we come to the last part of this passage, where God's sanctuary in heaven is ready as Armageddon approaches. John said, after these things, I looked and the temple, the tent or tabernacle of the testimony was opened in heaven. If you've never realized this or not, in Hebrews, the Bible book of Hebrews, talks about the fact that all the things that God led Moses to do, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, all of that, those were just representations of the reality of those things in heaven. See, there's a temple in heaven. There's an ark there as well, you see. These were just sort of the facsimiles of what is in heaven. 
And so John sees, and he, he sees this temple, this, this dwelling place of the witness to God's revelation. That's what the word testimony means. It is a witness to what God has revealed, either through his Son, to whom he has spoken to the world in these last days, through his Word, through his Spirit, through nature, through his creation. It is dealing with all that God has revealed. Why does John see in heaven this testimony or witness to God's revelation being opened up? Because God is going to show every human being who's ever lived, you were without excuse. You had no leg to stand on by rejecting my love and my salvation. You have turned your back and turned your ears off and turned your eyes away from all of this revelation. And it is now a witness to you that if you go out into eternity apart from me, you do so because you climbed over all of this revelation that I gave you day after day after day, including the hidden revelation that God gives to every human being that you and I don't see, which is something that you and I as Christians have to remind ourselves of. Because again, many times we get caught up by thinking along the lines of only externally what we can see God doing. No. God is speaking to hearts in ways that you and I can never see. And many times human beings are rejecting the voice of God that only they are hearing between God and them. And that is part of his revelation as well. And God is saying, as Paul said to the Romans, you're without excuse. And God's revelation will stand as that witness. And that's also a prelude to what's coming. But then notice this. The seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. Why is that significant? Because the temple, even in heaven, speaks about God's presence. Yes, God is everywhere, but God manifests his presence in certain places. And just like he does here in this church, we sense the presence of God with us in the temple in heaven, just like the temple in Jerusalem. His presence was manifested there. So note then that these angels who are coming out with these bowls of God's wrath that they are getting ready to pour out upon the earth dwellers, they are coming directly from the presence of God. God, again, is in control here in the events that's taking place. And they were dressed in clean, bright linen, wearing wide golden belts around their chest. Why does John mention their dress? Because it signifies the righteous character of their mission. What they are about to do is right. It is righteous. 
It lines up with the holiness of God. And they're dressed a certain way to carry out that mission. Then one of the four living creatures, those angelic beings that we've talked about throughout Revelation who lead the worship of heaven, they're actually the ones that gave the seven angels these seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. I think it's significant that the final outpouring of God's wrath is contained in these bowls, if you will, or maybe even look at them as like pitchers with a spout. Why are they contained in those containers? I think there's a parallel here because earlier in the book of Revelation, we saw that God collected all the prayers of the saints down through the ages in what? In a bowl. And one of the things that you and I have to keep in mind is that what God is about to do on this earth to rid the world of evil once and for all, he does not only because that's part of his plan, but he's also doing it because he's doing it in response to the prayers of his people down through the ages, even prayers like... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is responding to those prayers of collecting those prayers in this bowl and now using a bowl to pour out that wrath in response. The fact that John writes he lives forever, he's the eternal God, again, the uncreated, the endless one, is because even though God allowed sin to exist in this earth and on this earth for thousands of years now, as the eternal God, he says, I'm not going to let it go forever. That there's going to be an eternity without sin, without evil, without wickedness. And all those like Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, as we're going to see, is going to be separated from all that is right and all that is righteous, and they're going to burn in the lake of fire forever and ever. And anyone who wants no parts of Jesus Christ, they will be there as well. Verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke, Smoke from God's glory and from his power. Again, the writer of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. A fire because he's holy, a fire because he's passionate. And smoke always attends the glory and power of God throughout the Bible. We saw the glory cloud or Shekinah cloud on Mount Sinai. We saw the glory cloud descend upon the temple in Jerusalem and then leave it. We saw the cloud guide the Israelites through the desert. God's presence, manifestations of his glory and his power. But then don't miss this. This is very significant. Thus, no one at this time now could enter the temple, the presence of God. 
until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. It's as if at this moment in history, right before these final bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the earth and his wrath is brought to a completion, that God is literally with himself alone in this momentous moment. He allows no one else into the temple. He allows no distraction whatsoever. He is to himself and within himself at that moment. Yes, even the God who loves to be with his people, the God who loves fellowship, the God who loves to be close and be surrounded by his people. At this moment, for one moment in time, it's, I think, a very unique moment. God says, I just need to be with myself here. No one comes into the temple. Because what is about to happen is the most intense judgment the earth will ever see. The final bowls of God's wrath. And Revelation 15 is given to us as basically the prelude to what is to come in the chapters to come. But what we learn from this great chapter is how amazing our God is that he is to be praised for his judgment and his justice. He is to be praised for his works and his ways. He is to be praised for his name and his nature, and he is to be praised for his worth and his wisdom. May we be in awe and wonder of our God, knowing that through him, just like the Israelites long ago, God defeated our enemies. God delivered us from sin. God has forgiven us for all time. God has transferred us into the kingdom of his son forever and ever. God has seated us at his right hand in glory. God is preparing for us a place that he's going to come back and receive us unto himself and we will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that you prepare your people for what is about to come. And God, you even through this chapter were preparing your people down through the ages, and even those who will be alive during this time, for what is about to come. And you are reminding us, God, to, to keep our eyes and our attention fixed upon you, not to get caught up in earthly things, earthly rulers, but, Lord, to gaze upon the wonder that you are. To be reminded, God, that all that we are and all that we have and all that we will have for all of eternity is simply because of you and your goodness and your grace.
And yet, God, so many are climbing over day after day all of the revelation of your love that you are pouring out to them. And they are rejecting it over and over and over again. God, may we not be like that. May we take heed to what the writer of Hebrews says, that today, if we hear your voice, let's not harden our hearts as others have done, because today can make a difference for us as well. Today can be the day of our salvation, our deliverance, our rescue, our victory. Today can be the day that we see our enemy defeated. And so, God, we claim that. We claim our victory in Jesus Christ. We claim our triumph through Jesus Christ. And we pray today, God, that as we go forth and live our lives on this earth, however long you have for us to live and serve you, God, that we will live victoriously, that we will realize, God, You've given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for this time that we could gather. Thank you for the wonderful time of worship where we could lift you up and exalt you in your house that you've provided for us, God. May our worship not stop when we leave this building. May it continue through the evening and even as we lay our head on our pillow and go to sleep tonight. May we worship you, Lord, even through the night hours. And may we wake up, Lord, ready to worship you tomorrow morning if you give us another day to live. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.